prayer. I'm, uh, my brother posted a prayer just uh, this past week on his blog, and I'm going to read that prayer as our opening prayer this morning. So uh, let's pray. Righteous and compassionate God, whose goodness and truth are unwavering and whose compassion remains steadfast, we cringe today before private and public corruption and blatant cruelty that threatens our nation and world. Dishonesty, greed, and hate are applauded while personal integrity, generosity, and compassion are viewed as weakness. Disturb our consciences, purge our greediness, and melt the hardness of our hearts. Grant us a renewed vision of your dream for the world, where all people are treated with inherent worth and dignity as your beloved children where all barriers among us are removed and the human family is one, where integrity and honesty prevail in private and public life, where creation is healed and enabled to flourish as you intend, where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a cascading stream, and all are welcomed at your table of abundance, where your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, through your grace, O oh God, empower us to live now in the light of your dream, brought near in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Joe. today. Uh, in the offering basket that's coming back, um, I did bring those seven questions that we talked about last week. That I said I put on a half sheet of paper and you could slip inside your copy of the social principles or inside your Bible. Um, just to keep in mind, these aren't the only questions. Um, as we go through the social principles, though, we do really want to foreground the sort of deep theological assumptions that uh, Christians have. And um, the reason United Methodist Church has these social principles is because they believe it flows from our theology, our understanding of who God is, who we are, what God's doing in the world. Um, they just didn't come around because somebody thought, you know, Methodists should create a bunch of things that could upset people. Um, and so we want to keep that in mind. And I think if uh, the more we can sort of foreground um, our discussion and our reflection in that, um, I think it helps uh, to keep, at least it helps to keep me, um, and maybe you too, I don't know, but it helps keep me from uh, sort of running too far away to all kinds of conversations that are grounded in all kinds of other things that may be worthwhile, but that stray from our deepest convictions about who we are and who God is and what's going on. So just keep those in view, and I think there'll be times when we, we sort of raise those explicitly, and I hope today uh, as we do so. The other thing, uh, we have Tom Terry to thank for these uh, guidelines for holy conferencing. 
We mentioned holy conferencing last week. Uh, Tom was good enough to put some of these on the back table. If you don't have one right now, you don't have to have one right now. Um, but I, I thought I would just just read them very quickly, just because just to kind of remind us, because these are sort of helpful ground rules to have for any conversation you're having uh, with other Christians, I think. But this is deeply rooted in the Methodist tradition of, of holy conferencing. So here they are. Every person is a child of God. Always speak respectively. One can disagree without being disagreeable. Secondly, listen patiently before formulating responses. That's hard, right? Um, try, three, strive to understand the experience out of which others have arrived at their views. That's one of the reasons we did that little exercise last week, right, where we ask you questions and just kind of remind us that even in a room like this where a lot of people might think that we're all alike, we're really different in a lot of ways. And those life experiences have shaped the way we see the world and ourselves and God and lots of other things. Um, four, be careful in how you express personal offense at differing opinions, otherwise dialogue might be inhibited. Right? So when someone says something that you disagree with, you know, Check yourself about like how, how do you respond to that? Uh, that that's a challenge. Uh, five, accurately reflect the views of others when speaking. This is especially important when you disagree with that position. So accurately ref reflect other people's positions with whom you disagree. Uh, I insist on this in the classroom. Um, this is a really important thing. Uh, I tell my students, if you cannot state another person's position with whom you disagree, if you can't state their position in a way that they recognize as their position, then don't have a conversation because you're, you're not even having a disagreement yet. Right? Until I can state your position in a way that you say, yep, that's what I'm saying. Now we can talk. Right? But if I'm arguing against a position that you don't even hold, then what are we arguing about? Right? I'm talking about one thing and you're talking about another. Um, so I, I insist that students do that when they're reading a text, even from you know, thousands of years ago. If you can't state that position the way that you think that person would recognize it, then don't talk about it. You don't know what you're talking about yet. Okay? So that's hard. That's hard because a lot of us think we know what the other person's saying, but they don't think we know what they're saying. Right? Uh, six, avoid using inflammatory words, derogatory names, or an excited and angry voice. I know we don't need that in here, but that's, that's, that's for other people. Uh, yeah, none of you would do that. And last, avoid making generalizations about individuals and groups. Make your point with specific evidence and examples. Right? Yeah. There are times we always, I mean, it's hard not to make generalizations, but we all know they're dangerous, right? Um, and it's really easy um, to start talking about, you know, those people or these people or whoever and making large global claims. So thank you, Tom, for giving those to us. Again, there's several copies of those on the back if you want to get one. Probably also not a thing, bad thing to tuck inside your Bible. Um, I'm not gonna sort of like, excuse me, but I think you just violated number four. <laughs> I'm not gonna set myself up as, as the holy conferencing police. Um, but it just seemed like it might be a good thing to be reminded because this is, I mean, you don't need me to tell you is 
this is not the way what counts for discourse or conversation happens. And so even, even this is a way in which, I mean, we said that social principles are extraordinary in, uh, in the church, right? The United Methodists were the first ones to go on record in public about what they believed about social principles and, and take the risk of putting it in writing. They were the first ones to do that, at part of the United Methodist heritage. And it's a gift that they have to offer other churches and other people, just as nothing else to say, here are Christians who think the gospel has these implications, potentially, for living in the world. Uh, they don't believe they've got it all right. They don't think it's the last word. That's why it gets revised every four years. Right? It's because they know things change. And so, um, but it seems like this is, not, and this is not a bad gift to the rest of the church in the world either. <laughs> Right? We are desperately in need of ways, learning how to talk to each other, and particularly with people we disagree with. And again, that doesn't have to be people out there. I'm not naive enough to think there is a disagreement in here. I mean, I've been doing this for six or seven years, right? So I've seen a disagreement once or twice. Uh, even though most of you are so polite, you don't, you don't have the, uh, what is it? inflammatory words, derogatory names, or excited or angry voice. <laughs> At least not in here. You say that for all the way home, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the paper shuffling. Um, today we do want to try to talk a little bit about, as much, time, much as we can in the time that we have, we're going to start to deal with this first section uh, called The Natural World, that if you have your book, starts on 22. And it's only, you know, four, three and a half pages. Um, and we're not, there's no way we can talk about all of it. We're going to talk about a few things. But I, I do want to say a couple of things. Um, and then I want to ask you some questions. Um, just to kind of remind you, uh, I know you all read this because yeah, you just have. Um, but you'll notice that each of the, the or you will notice if you, if you haven't been reading ahead, that um, there is in this and in the Book of Revol Resolutions, which accompanies this book, which offers the specific policy advice, um, there's always, they always take some time to sort of ground like what they're saying in the church's theology. It doesn't just start talking about the natural world. It, it frames that theologically, right? So if, if you haven't read it or if you don't have it in front of you, the first, let's just look at the first uh, few sentences here. Starts off by saying, all creation is the Lord's and we are responsible for the ways in which we use and abuse it. Okay? That's a theological statement. Not everybody in the world believes that, right? Not all the world believes that all creation is the Lord's. Um, but if you just start there, that has implications, right? And that we're responsible for the ways we use and abuse it. Water, air, soil, minerals, energy, resources, plants, and animal life in space are to be valued and conserved because they are God's creation and not solely because they're useful to human beings. That's also a theological conviction. Right? Um, 
I know I grew I don't know where I got this. Maybe you got this too growing up if you were one of those people that were reared in church. I grew up thinking that God made the world for us. Did you? Male or female? And I could, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think you'd find it difficult to justify that from Scripture. That God created the world for us. I mean, if you start beginning the story, it's quite clear that creation has integrity and is good before we ever arrive on the scene. Right? Um, and the, and the, the world, God's creation, gives glory to God apart from us. Um, and I don't, I don't think you'll find anywhere in Scripture where God says, and oh, by the way, I made all of this for you. Although I think that's what I thought growing up. Um, but that's, again, if God made it all for me, then I can do with it what I want, because it's for me. But if, if it has a kind of integrity on its own, then that raises questions about, like, well, what's my relationship? What's our relationship to the rest of creation? Because we are ourselves part of creation. The great, the great divide, the great distinction in the opening chapters of Christian scripture is between the creator and everything else. Right? And we're part of the everything else. And that's hard to forget. I mean, it's hard to remember. Or it's easy to forget. Right? Um, in fact, you could argue that's what's partly going on in the garden. Right? Is this... It's part of what uh, Satan's playing on, right? Uh, you, could, you could be like God. You could blur. Now, it's, it's true. Humans are not just any part of creation. We're made in the image of God, which makes us unique for sure. But the question is, what does that mean as far as our relationship? Right. Um, so, here's what this says. God has granted us stewardship of creation. We should meet these stewardship duties through acts of loving care and respect. And now here's two things that, again, we've, it's hard to keep in, in balance, but two, two truths, both of which are true. Economic, political, social, and technological developments have increased our human numbers and lengthened and enriched our lives. That's true, right? So part of human stewardship of creation has helped human beings do what God wanted human beings to do, which is flourish. That's true. And we can be thankful for human beings across countless generations who have stewarded well creation and in so doing helped human beings to flourish. That, that's good stewardship. Right? It is also true, as it continues, however, right, there's, a, there's another part of the story, and we know this, these developments have led to, and here's some examples, 
regional defoliation, dramatic extinction of species, massive human suffering, overpopulation, and misuse and overconsumption of natural and non-renewable resources, particularly by industrialized societies, of which we are one. Okay. Both those things are true. And, and we live in the middle of that. And the question is, once you've said that theologically, what can we say? Okay, if you agree theologically that this is true, this is who God is, this is who we are, this is how, this is what God expects of us in the broadest of terms, can we say anything specifically? And so again, United Methodists have risks saying some specific things. So just to remind you, and particularly those you don't have a book, so there are sections in the next three pages about these topics. Okay? Water, the first one is water, air, soil, minerals, and plants. Okay, it's got one paragraph about that. Obviously, there's more to say than one paragraph about all that. Second, energy resource utilization. Third, animal life. Fourth, global climate stewardship. E, space. Next, science and technology, food safety, and food justice. Um, those are not the only things. But the Book of Resolutions speaks to a lot of those things in very specific terms. And if we have time, I'll read you just a couple of resolutions that United Methodists have made as far as very specific policy issues so you can see how this gets translated out into even more specific things. Right? Um, but I thought we'd just stop there, because I know a lot of you have read this. Many of you read it for last week. We didn't get there, but we're here today. Um, I thought we would just start with asking a very simple question. Um, maybe it's simple. Um, I said I hoped that as we were reading the social principles that all of us would find ourselves at various times in having three possible reactions, right? Some of us will be really excited and that something that we care about and thought probably was connected to our faith, the United Methodists had articulated in a way that we thought, yes, I'm glad that, that, that we believe that's an implication of the gospel. Other of us might find ourselves, or all of us might find ourselves at a different point, or some, maybe sometimes the same thing. It's making me excited about it. Somebody else might find themselves uh, perplexed, distressed, defensive, because what the United Methodist Social Principle says seems to cut against something that we have pretty deep convictions about. And so we might find ourselves conflicted, defensive. Again, I don't want to predict all the different kinds of reactions a person might have when we, that we find ourselves bumping into that. And then the third thing is some of us might just be surprised, um, maybe even delighted at some level to say, gosh, you know, I just never really thought about how the Christian faith has implications about that. I never really connected that. And this is really part of what we're doing over these uh, next several years that we study the social principles. <laughs> I was just seeing if you're listening. Uh, There'll be a revision during that time. Yeah. Somebody said that to me this week, right there. Uh, you got that sent out too, right? They're in the. Part of the reason we're doing this because they are going to be revised because they're right in the next four years. And so um, this is not the end of the story. Um, so yeah, is, is to realize part of what we're doing 
is this important exercise of trying to make connections. We talk to ourselves about being a connectional church, and when the United Methodists say that, we mean that we're connected to a worldwide church. Right? That's really important to who we are. Um, but all Christians are connected, connectional in the sense that part of being a faithful disciple of Jesus is trying to make connections from basic theological, scriptural understanding to everyday life. How do, you, how do you connect those dots? And it's not always easy. And again, one of the things that I am actually, I am both in awe of and terrified of is that the United Methodists have taken the risk to do that. They haven't, United Methodists, and a lot, what a lot of, we said this the first day, what a lot of churches have done is just said, you know, here's the Bible, here's scripture, good luck. Right? You, you figure out how you think your faith is connected with this. And United Methodists have risked, and really have risked, trying to say, we think, on our best understanding of Scripture and the Christian tradition and experience and reason, that quadrilateral, we think here are some concrete, specifiable implications of following the way of Jesus. And so part of what we're trying to do is to say, can we, can we see how those who, who did this, how General Conference did this. Uh, can we see what they were thinking back to the Holy Conferences? Can I, can I understand how they got there? How did they make that connection? Sometimes it, it'll be easy for you to see because you've made that connection yourself. Other times you can't see it. So I thought maybe the first thing we'd do would just be to ask. Um, can, as you were reading this week or last week or as you were just hearing, when we listed these seven or eight areas, or as you were reading these three and a half pages, uh, somebody give us one place where you were pleased, delighted, felt confirmed that something that you thought was an implication of the gospel was actually articulated in these three and a half pages about the natural world. Somebody just give us one place where you thought, yeah, that makes sense. I've always thought that. Glad the United Methodists got that one right. Recycling. Recycling. Okay. You always thought that was an implication. Not always. But, but you have come to think. Yes. Good. Yes. Yeah, and that's not easy necessarily, right? I mean, there's several steps to think, you know, what does the good news of Jesus Christ have to do with recycling? I'm pretty sure if you were doing a, a man or woman on the street interview and just stopping people, uh, I'm not sure any, any people could be very articulate about that, right? If you give them a little time, they might be able to, but it's not immediately obvious, right? It's not as if Paul said uh, to the Corinthian church, and thou, of course, in following the way of Jesus, should recycle. Uh, it's not, but you can, but you can get there. Now, again, if, if you didn't get there, or if you, you still don't quite get that, that's okay. But at least one person thought, I can see that connection. I can see how that makes sense. That's part of stewardship, et cetera. Okay. Treatment um, of animals. Treatment of animals. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. The way some people, pets, they put them out and leave them, or mm -hmm. hunting for animals that shouldn't be hunted, you know, killing beautiful animals that are then extinct. I, I, I wish that, well, 
I can see where God is intervening in something like that. Yeah, so what's our relationship? This goes back to the question we asked last week about who's our neighbor. Does that include the animal kingdom? Other animals, right? Are they our neighbors too? And what does that mean? Uh, does that mean we can never kill animals under certain situations? And if so, what are those situations? And how do we think about that in terms of stewardship? I mean, I'm not suggesting it's simple, right? Um, but, but I'll give you, yeah, why not? <laughs> I keep saying we're going to get in trouble, and I haven't yet, so I probably should. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's time. Wait, here's a question I wrestle with, okay, when I think about stewardship of creation. In this world, not some imaginable world, but the world we live in, okay, when God created us in the divine image and gave us uh, whatever you think uh, stewardship over creation is and kind of priesthood over it, and part of which is to be caretakers of animals and other kinds of things, right? Um, do you think God ever envisioned, or do I think God ever envisioned, that good stewardship would entail, uh, say, let's just pick an example, what in the industrial production of turkeys looks like in American culture? Now, if you don't know what the industrial production of turkeys looks like in American culture, Again, this is one of those situations where it can be kind of willful ignorance, because you can find out in five minutes, right? Just Google turkey production in the US and you will find out more than you want to know, okay? Um, so is that what God had in mind when God created turkeys, right? Um, so that we could do all the things, and again, I'm not gonna get into specific because that's not necessary, but I think a lot of you know. Um, but the point is, most of us don't have to know because all we need to know is that come week before Thursday, I can go to Kroger's and I can go over to the, the bin there and pick up a beautifully cellophane wrapped turkey and I don't have to know where it came from. I don't, right? And I don't even ever necessarily connect that with Christian discipleship. Like, what does going to Kroger's have to do with Christian discipleship? Where did anybody ever teach me anything about that? Those connections just aren't clear for most of us, right? Um, so, yeah, animals. So, we could do others. I hope there are other places where, let's, let's, let's do the harder thing. Um, where's one place where somebody said, I'm not sure, at least right now, that I know how to make the connection to that. What you, what you read here, what seemed implied in that. And you don't have to say much about it, but I'm sure there's other people that feel the same way. But So where was one place where you, again, I'm not presuming you felt defensive, but at least you were perplexed or unclear about like why United Methodists thought that was an implication of the Christian life. Anybody find one of those in these three pages? be brave enough to ever say so. This can allow us to focus on yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that means changes in all facets of life. Not just necessarily are you referring to religious connotation. 
Okay, can you say a little more about that method? Say what you're, I'll make sure I'm tracking with you. Well, that we have seen changes with our culture yesterday and today and more tomorrow. And you're talking about animal issues, you're talking about people in general. So we, we have yesterday, we have the hope of today and tomorrow to focus on what's happening in our world. Okay. So changes are happening. Absolutely. And how are we going to respond to those? Uh, in light of who we are and who God is. And, and quite apart, as, if I think I'm hearing you right, and also quite apart from that. We're all in God's world. Yeah. And so that's our main focus, is to focus on whatever technology has in store for us. Okay. But look at it from a Christian perspective. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Places where any of you found yourself chafing just a little bit? I was surprised about the bottled water. Yeah, good. And maybe we'll say just a little bit about that. Just, again, not to convince you, but to say, how, what does falling away of Jesus have to do with bottled water? I thought it was just water, right? That seems pretty innocent to most people, right? Um, so let's come back to that one, just to take, to take a concrete example. Again, not to convince you, but to say, here are some possible connections, at least for some people. And again, you can decide whether you make any sense of it or not, okay? But I think that's, that's a good one, because I think a lot of people would read this, and you're talking about all kinds of general things, and all of a sudden you get down to well, water. And that's one of the resolutions in the Book of Resolutions, that United Methodists will work to, for the reduction of the use of single-use plastic bottles. That's pretty specific. Okay, that's pretty specific. That's, that's courageous, <laughs> right? It's one thing to just say, you know, let's recycle, let's, you know, cut down on waste, but to say, how about single-use plastic bottles? Right? Yeah, straws. I mean, you might be surprised to find out, I mean, I came back from Kenya, plastic bags are against the wall in Kenya. Okay? Kenya. You get warned when you're coming in the country, plastic bags are against the law in Kenya. Do they want the fabric? You can use fabric, yeah, but not plastic. All right, and again, we'll talk about that. Like, I just, that might seem crazy, but I mean, this is a, this is a secular government that's decided this is not good for human beings and for the planet, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you can disagree, but just interesting. Like I say, the world's changing. What do you do with that? Um, before we say a little bit more about plastic bottles, I think that's going to be our example for the day, the only one we're going to have time with. How about something that someone was like surprised about when you were reading? Um, you thought, I hadn't really thought about connections to that. Yeah. The church doesn't really say anything either in the section on natural resources or even the political section on access to free water which really has been the result of several wars, yeah. especially in the Middle East and Africa, where people just don't have access to fresh water. Yeah. So, although it's important to talk about bottled water, it really doesn't make a heavy enough stance, to, you know, in my mind, about the access to fresh water and how we can ensure that first and foremost. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And you should know, if you go to uh, the resolutions, it actually has a whole section 
on water and access to water. So it does think that's an implication, specific implication, of these general statements about natural resources, about water. So it wasn't in the book. It's in the book of resolutions, which are the specific social policy issues for these general social theological principles. So you're absolutely right, right? Um, yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about access to water and bottled water, because they're not disconnected, <laughs> okay? They're not, they're not disconnected. And then, I know we're out of time, but that's okay, because that limits the amount I can get in trouble. <laughs> um, so, a couple of quick things. Yes, please. Right. So they refuse to take what we ship over there, which I thought we were recycling it. Apparently, it's just being put in big landfills in China. They were using it, but now we're shipping them stuff that's uns okay. unseparated, and a lot of the plastics they can't recycle either, just like you can. Like you're supposed to put number one and number two out in your bin in Johnson City, but people just throw everything in there, and they just throw it all in there, and you ship it all away, and let them worry about it. Okay. And the Chinese are now saying, we're going to stop doing that. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, so there are things that are recycled. I mean, I'm wearing a pair of pants that's made out of recycled bottles. <laughs> I'm serious. These are, these are made out of, you can buy pants now that are made out of recycled plastic. Are they comfortable? They're lovely. <laughs> they, 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 keep, they keep a crease. <laughs> At the store. <laughs> I bought them at Belks, for heaven's sake. I didn't go anywhere fancy. I mean, this is mainstream folk. This is mainstream stuff. So, um, yeah. Um, can you just hose them down? Yeah. I just wear them in the shower. Just drip dry. Do they advertise there? I just happen to look at what they're made of. Oh. Yeah. I was I was surprised too. I didn't know they were doing that now, but they are. That's where they are to the Yeah. So plastic bottles. Gosh, you're all so good. You get me distracted. You're like my students. Like, if we get him off on something, we, we won't have to cover the material. This is not single-use, and it's EPA-free. Yeah. Anyway. In the United States, in the United States, we use roughly 50 billion water bottles a year. Only 20. 4% of which are recycled. So about 38 billion plastic water bottles a year get thrown away. And most of you know, it, it takes, I can't give you all the stats right now, but you can, you can look it up. This is a wonderful thing. You, you're educated people, you know how to educate yourself. But go, go find out like the enormous amount of energy and water that it takes to make a plastic bottle, which is from petroleum. Right, you know that plastic's a petroleum product, right? It's an incredible amount of energy for that. Um, the other thing, and this is the other reason about this is, and this goes to access of water, is 
but just as it's an incredibly inefficient way to deliver water for most people. Right? We pride ourselves in efficiency. Let's just take the, the standard, you should have eight servings of water a day. There are some health professionals that question that now, but let's just say you want to be perfectly hydrated like you've been taught. Okay? If you drank that out of the tap over a year, that would cost you 49 cents at typical municipal rates for tap water. 49 cents to have eight servings of water for a year. If you buy average costs of single-use, $1,400. $1,400 for 49 cents of municipal rate water. And you know, I mean, I don't trust and a lot of people don't trust, trust water, but you can put filters in it and you're going to be filtering it more than Pepsi and Coke are. But they, Pepsi and Coke make water. 24% of the water sold in the United States is by Pepsi. And, and all they do is take municipal water, purify it, and then put it in a bottle. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter who makes it. I mean, the largest one is Nestle. The largest one in the world is Nestle. Hey, I'm just saying. That's fine. Don't have to get defensive. I'm just saying we're talking about water. Right? But access to water, I mean, let's talk about access to water. I mean, Nestle uh, has a huge plant in, Detroit, in Michigan where you know there's water problems in Michigan. Right? People in Flint, Michigan have been having to buy their water. Right? Um, Nestle pays $540 a year in one city in Michigan, this one plant, to buy and pump 30 billion gallons of water in order to bottle it. That's like a pretty good deal. Get 30 billion gallons for $540 a year. Then they turn around and bottle that to people who can't get tap water in their city, partly because this is the, one of the changes that's happening. Municipalities are saying, we don't have to keep up our, our uh, water purification because people are drinking bottled water. Well, that's fine if you can afford $1,400 a year for your water, but a lot of people can't and won't and will never have access to bottled water. So you begin to see how access to healthy water and just something like bottled water, there are connections there that aren't immediately obvious. There's a lot more to say, but you begin to see that. And, and the garbage, um, if you've never heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I don't know why we call it a patch. I mean, a patch like, is like something you have in your backyard, right? Uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is 620,000 square miles. It's between Hawaii, California and Hawaii. It's in that gyre, right, where the currents keep all the stuff right in that spot. So in case you don't know, like, what's 620,000 square miles, that's, take two Texases and add a Kansas. That's the size of the garbage patch. That's largely plastics. It's in between Hawaii and California. It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which just sounds like a euphemism, right? Oh, there are others. Yeah. This is the largest one in the world, wow. right? Wow. 
Um, just seems like, how, how do we as Christians like justify that? Right? More to say, but I'm just saying, that is that, is that good stewardship? And how do, the solutions aren't easy, but at least it raises questions about what you and I do every day, relatively unthinking, myself included. Right? I don't really think about the impact of what I do on the world, and maybe that's a place to start. So, lots more to say, but we're off and running, getting into plenty of trouble. Bill, yes. You talked about uh, how we can't, we, part of what we throw away can't be used, but it, are the plastics that we uh, recycle, are they used again or not? Yes, they are. Yeah, but they, they are. Ideally, they are. It just kind of depends on what your municipality does with them. Oh, yeah. It'd be good to know. It'd be interesting to find out. Like, what is what do we do with our reason? What happens with my stuff that goes to... Like, again, whoever thought that was an implication of following the way of Jesus, I should know what happens. I shouldn't think that just because I put it at the end of my driveway, I'm done with it. All my responsibility is over. Phil, Maybe it's not. If, if there's anybody in this room who might have the answer, I've been told by the girl who cleans my house, for instance, and several other people, that your recycle stuff is frequently just dumped in with the garbage because they don't have enough facility for the recycling. And sometimes it's, it has to do with uh, market conditions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes when like, the, pace, the, the price of recycled paper drops, it's not economically, you know, viable, and so it does go to the landfill. So it'd be good to know those things, because sometimes you think you're doing the right thing, and you are doing the right thing as far as you're concerned. It's just hard to know, right? So if nothing else, let's just encourage it to be a little more thoughtful, right? Um, we're not going to get it all right. We're not going to be perfect. Our hands aren't always going, are never going to be completely clean. That's not the point. The point is our everyday actions, just like everybody else, they do matter more than we think, and. Um, maybe being a follower of Jesus means thinking about things we don't normally think about. So let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this stunning world, its beauty and majesty. Um, we give you thanks that you've entrusted us um, with being caretakers and stewards of this. We ask your forgiveness when we have failed. Pray you'd enliven our imaginations. Um, we often feel paralyzed. We don't know what to do. Um, pray you give us courage, and we would um, have the courage to act, um, not because we'll get it right, not because you'll love us more, but because you've called us to care about our neighbors and the way that our decisions every day, more than we know, often impacts our neighbors near and far. So we give you thanks for the opportunity to reflect on these matters uh, today and in the days ahead. Uh, we pray this through the one we seek to follow in all aspects of our lives. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>